Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who's the author of Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. Uh, Ruth Ben-Ghiat is an internationally acclaimed historian, speaker, and political commentator for The Atlantic, CNN, The Washington Post, and various other publications. She is a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and lives in New York City. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, first, thanks for writing such a phenomenal book. Over the last couple of months, we have been really digging into uh, different books and authors who are focusing on right-wing movements, uh, including Kathleen Ballou's Bring the War Home, um, uh, Catherine Miller Idris's um, Hate in the Homeland, which examines the sort of like the cultural components of this in the U.S., and, and your book is... I think one of the best books we've reviewed uh, all year, uh, even though it's been a short year so far, we're only in March. <laughs> um, it's, it's really a phenomenal book. So thanks for writing it. Thanks. It, it wasn't always the easiest book to write or the most pleasant book to write, but uh, I was inspired by feeling that these stories had to be told. Yep. <clears throat> so let's go straight into it. Your book examines the evolution <laughs> of authoritarianism. And you define authoritarianism as, quote, a political system in which executive power is asserted at the expense of legislative and judicial branches of government, unquote. Uh, your focus is on right-wing authoritarians, um, and I'll just name a few. You start with Mussolini, Hitler, Franco, Gaddafi, Pinochet, Mobutu, Berlusconi, Putin, all the way up to Trump. You argue that today's strongmen have deeper roots and that we must develop a historical perspective to properly understand them. And before we get into those different periods, uh, which I'll ask you in the next question, can you talk a little bit about why personalist rulers are the dang most dangerous form of authoritarians and also what distinguishes them from, say, other authoritarians? Yeah, so, so first, I, I'm a historian of fascism. And so in deciding how to structure the book and who to, who to put in it and who to leave out, um, I decided to focus on uh, right-wing uh, authoritarians. <clears throat> and um, Gaddafi is actually the exception. He was a man of the left, a revolutionary leftist, um, but he's in there because of his connections to uh, Mussolini and to Berlusconi. Um, and also it kind of shows that whether they come from the right or the left, if there's a dictatorship, they end up doing similar things. And one of these similarities um, I found was the concept of personalist rule. And this isn't a concept that people are very familiar with outside of like political science, but it refers to, it's kind of a subset of uh, authoritarians who, who are, you know, their personal um, ideological obsessions or financial needs or um, legal problems, um, and their, their quirks, their personality tendencies come to dominate the whole political life of their country. They come to, they come to influence um, domestic and foreign policy in an outsized manner. So you have, uh, I start the book with uh, Berlusconi in Italy who didn't, like Trump, he didn't wreck democracy, but he damaged it. Um, and he had this very uh, suspect and intense uh, relationship with Putin. Um, and they were doing these kind of private deals. And Berlusconi took over personally all of Italy's um, policy toward Russia, totally boxing out the foreign ministry, all the diplomats. And he had a kind of Rudolf Giuliani figure called Valentino Valentini, who was his envoy, who went to Russia to see Putin and Putin's people. So this kind of personalization of policy usually because they're doing um, illicit deals for financial gain. That's an example of personalism. And so I, I wanted to show one of the things about the book, although I talk a lot about enablers and followers, I wanted to show that when you have people of these personalities, and um, Trump had the same personality, like the outcome today is different. When you have these, these guys in there, with very, you know, they're kind of sociopathic, they're narcissistic. When you have them in there, um, things get, governance is chaotic, governance is destructive, and there's a lot of casualties. And Well, we just saw that, and we're still enduring that from uh, Trump's response yeah. to COVID, which you note in the introduction to the book. Um, 
Let's go into the different periods, if you could, because for people who might not have a chance to read this, if you're listening or watching, please actually read the book. Don't just watch this interview. (laughs) Actually get the book. But for those who won't be able to, your book focuses on three different periods, and the book is broken up into three different parts. Can you sort of define each of these periods? The first period is the fascist era, 1919 to 1945, the age of military coups, 1950 to 1990, and the new authoritarian age, 1990 to the present. Yeah, so these are all phases of this broader authoritarianism. And the strongman figure, I'm kind of defining the strongman as somebody who um, uses all of these other tools, but he also um, uses machismo and masculinity and virility is very important. So the fascist period, you have Hitler and Mussolini and, you know, comes right out of World War One. And I give a lot of attention to Mussolini, who doesn't Uh, He gets a short shrift compared to Hitler often, but he actually invented the authoritarian playbook. Um, And these are tools of violence, corruption, propaganda, machismo, and the myth of national greatness. And Mussolini, you know, was in power uh, over a decade before Hitler, and Hitler actually adored Mussolini and worshipped him and wanted to replicate his march on Rome in Germany. It didn't work, and then Hitler went to prison. So... I wanted to tell that story and really focus on the fact that Mussolini was kind of making it up as he went along because there was no dictatorship. Um, So, and then when fascism falls, you have this period of military coups. And so, because I'm looking at right wingers, I look at, I I, I have these through lines, like how um, neo-Nazis and neo-fascists in the 1950s you know, they, it wasn't good for them to stay in Germany and Italy anymore. So they went to Franco, Spain. And then Franco dies in 1975. And they go, they're going all over Latin America, because this is the golden age of, you know, right, US backed right wing military coups. And some of them go to Pinochet's Chile. So there's this one guy who's a neo fascist who I follow from, you know, he's he's a youth in World War II, he's a fascist, and then he goes to Franco, Spain, then he goes to Pinochet, Pinochet's Chile, and then he ends up back in Italy when Berlusconi comes in. So there, so that's the kind of through line I wanted to show. So when the Cold War ends, there's no more rationale for, you know, these US-backed coups. So you have what I call the new authoritarian age, and Berlusconi is the pioneer. Um, and so he was the first person to bring like neo-fascists into the government, bring a far right party into the government. And so many things he did, including the relationship with Putin, uh, it's kind of a premonition of, of what Trump would do later on. And so you have, you know, Erdogan and Putin and, and, and I go over, so that's how the book starts. So you see the three periods and then the core of the book is these chapters that are thematic um, that go each one goes over a century. So you have propaganda. So you, the reader can look at the propaganda chapter and see what stays the same and what changes. So like personality cults are amazingly the same, like the principles of them. But today you have social media, which kind of soups up and accelerates all the propagandizing. And each, you mentioned in that chapter, I'm, I'm going to back up a second, but I just want to note in that chapter, you also note that with each changing sort of technological medium, you have these new leaders finding ways to use it. So like straight out of the newspaper age and the age of propaganda newsletters to the age of television, now to the age of social media. Um, and that you even note toward the end of the book, that I think it's toward the end that Berlusconi sort of drifts into the age of TV where I forget who you name uh, as the person now who uh, has utilized social media in a way that Salvini. Yeah. So one of the things people ask, well, what, you know, why do people follow these guys? Why do people fall for their BS? Their, their, why do people become enamored of them and their hatred? And one thing I discovered, because the book really, it want, I wanted to show like recurrences, like, what keeps happening over and over. Um, And some of it's about human psychology, some of it's about um, social circumstances. For example, whenever there's been a lot of change in a society that that some people find uh, amazing and wonderful and others hate it and find it destabilizing, such as when there's been a lot of 
um, progress in racial equity or gender equity or um, workers' rights. When there's been these changes, uh, that's when these men come along and they become very uh, appealing as a way of kind of turning things back. If you think about how Trump was trying to undo everything about Obama, um, and we were ripe for this. If you look at that framework, because not only you had eight years of an African-American president who many people thought should never have been president to begin with, you had legalized same-sex marriage, you had full gender integration in the military, all these things that in particular, you know, white male Christians uh, felt were they were losing authority, they were losing status. So that's one thing. But another thing is that a lot of these guys um, had came to power with a experience in mass communications. Some of them were journalists like Mussolini and Mobutu in the Congo. Um, Berlusconi was the master of TV. He owned TV networks. He, he really had a huge personality cult. Um, he knew how to um, manipulate the attention of the media and the public in a very sophisticated manner. And you had Trump who came from reality TV and is equally, as we, as we get more distance, uh, you know, he's an extremely successful propagandist and marketer. And he kind of read the market for what was needed, according to the right, uh, what, wasn't being, what needs weren't being answered. And so these men, because they come with a background in media and performance, let's say, they will be whatever the, the culture needs them to be to get to power. They are totally amoral and they will ally with anyone and they will be anything. So that's what makes them so dangerous. Um, but it's also why people fall in love with them, right? Because right? they seem to answer what is needed in society. Have you seen the documentary uh, Videocracy? It's funny you mentioned that. I have seen it, and I'm um, my my class uh, on propaganda. I'm teaching at NYU right now. They're going to see it next week. It's such a good, it's such a good movie. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah I love. I'm going to interview the director here in in the next couple of months. Oh, and, that's great. And I was uh, I, I just went back and watched it again a couple nights ago, preparing for this interview, and. Um, <laughs> It reminds me, look, we live, we're in Michigan City, Indiana. I come from a long line of like military veterans and union steel workers. Trump, the whole rise of, I remember a lot of my liberal progressive friends, Sergio and I both served in the Marine Corps. We were both in Iraq. We came home from the war and joined the anti-war movement and have been in participating in sort of progressive political movements ever since. But we've seen some of our other friends, this is something else you note in the book, a lot of veterans are involved with these movements. I'm somewhat familiar with the Italian futurists, and of course, most of them veterans come back. You know, these are people who have experienced like extreme violence, and we've seen some of our friends go both one way, you know, extreme right, and then also on the other end. Um, and I think we probably hovered there, to be honest, when we were in our 20s uh, in the extreme left land. Um, but I think that's coming out of like, frustration, you're angry, you've seen all of this uh, death and suffering, you want an answer for it, you're looking for enemies to blame. All of those things, I think, resonate uh, with us. And then also, you know, the, I don't want to go on too long because I want you to speak uh, as much as you can. But uh, just to give you some context of like with Trump, you know, where, where we're from, there's definitely a lot of what you're saying is true. I know some of my dad's friends who voted for this guy are like, you know, it's they it's gay people, it's immigrants, it's Muslims, it's this, it's that. But there was also a whole section of people that we grew up with who voted for this guy because of the aftermath of NAFTA, because of the aftermath of these neoliberal economic policies. And it made me think a lot as I was reading your book about the context in which these things arise. You know, we've been yeah. thinking about and reading a lot about ISIS over the years because we were largely operating in Al-Ambar province in western Iraq and some of the towns and cities that were first taken over by ISIS. Um, thinking of the, the aftermath of World War I, the collapse of the great empires, the aftermath of World War II and the collapse of the colonial structure, and then the post-1990 world where you have like this hyper-neoliberal economic program yeah. that runs through Russia and then that's the context in which Putin comes about and seeing it here at home with Trump uh, has been very scary um, that it seems to me 
from, from our perspective of where we live, like we need some big programs here uh, to help people out or else I could see this like coming about again. Too many of my liberal and progressive friends think we're over it. You know, they're like, okay, he's gone. It's over with. Now we've got Biden. Maybe we can move on. I remember in 2008, people saying that the Democratic Party were going to run the show for the next 50 years and demographics were changing and it was all over with. Um, I, I just wonder if you could touch on, sorry for rambling too long, but just... If no, you could, it's if, really important. If you could touch on like the context in which these men come about. Yeah, well, you know, one thing you, you, you said, um, if you want to know, if you want to identify a strongman on the rise, you look for somebody who starts um, using grievance politics to appeal to people who feel disenfranchised, who feel left out, who feel like they're the losers of capitalism, um, and who also talk about victimhood, the nation's victimhood, and then they become also the victim. They become the symbol of the victimhood. And that's very tantalizing to people. Of course, the joke, the, the terrible tragic, it's not a joke, but the tragedy is that these guys are always uh, the biggest hypocrites ever. You know, all of Trump's anti-globalist stuff. Trump is the biggest globalist of anyone. His whole business model was about licensing his name abroad. And he's, you know, asking the Chinese to help him. He's asking, you know, he's getting help from the Russians. I mean, no one is less uh, patriotic. Uh, they're, they're transactional, uh, men like Trump. But they're very good at... Um, using this negative politics of grievance. And so when Trump did his, um, when he accepted the inauguration, uh, and then he repeated the message many other times, including, uh, sorry, when he accepted the nomination, and he repeated it at the inauguration. And he depicted America um, as a kind of a rusted out wreck of a place. And at the inauguration, when he did this, uh, I have this in the book. George Bush was there and he said, excuse my language, it's his language. He said, that's some weird shit. Because instead of a, an uplifting um, you know, inaugural speech, Trump was like threatening and he was depressing and he was saying, we're just a piece of junk. And then of course, I'm gonna fix it. I'm gonna save it. And when I heard that speech, it was one of the many times I, I, I got very disturbed and felt dread because this is what strongmen do. They push everybody down, they use crisis politics, and then they become the savior and they make people feel good while they're actually, you know, doing the opposite. So even Mussolini, who came from a background, he was the first one to do this BS. Uh, he came from a background of socialism, and very early on, like we're talking before he got into power as prime minister, he had some things that still were left over from socialism, and of course, the rhetoric of revolution, he was going to shake everything up, because these guys are always, they have movements, they're going to shake everything up. But when he actually started prime minister in 1922, and Italy was a democracy, one of the first things he did was massive privatizations. And nobody learns about that. He privatized the telephone industry, the insurance industry, like these are big industries because he needed to keep the goodwill of his real backers who were these big elites, big capital. So Trump did the same, you know, Trump going on about anti-globalism and the forgotten people. And then the winners have been big pharma, agribusiness, a big anything, as long as you're big anything uh, or you're, you know, you were, you were tied to Turkey or Russia and all those kind of illicit, you know, foreign trans transnational semi-criminal things, you did really well. Um, so, so there's a lot, one of the reasons I wrote the book is to kind of show, uh, show up these hypocrisies that, that, that repeat in history. Um, and, and a lot of the myths that, uh, come up around this, like people used to say of Pinochet in Chile, who famously um, invited in neoliberal economics, Americans came in, and people said, oh, he brought stability, it was law and order, and it was so good for business. Well, it was so bad for business that by the early 30s, I mean, it was very good for international capital and big industry, big media, 
but uh, you know, almost a dozen banks failed by the early 80s and uh, the state had to go in and like make them public and take them over. So we don't hear about all of these other histories uh, because authoritarians have been so skillful at propaganda. And so the book was trying is trying to kind of, um, you know, peel back the curtain on on this this because people fall for it again and again. And some of the hypocrisy you note in the book is not just from the leaders themselves and the actions, the words they may use before getting into office or while they're in and then the actual actions they're taking. But you also note, and you you sort of alluded to this in your response, um, this connection to the enablers, big capital, the International Monetary Fund, banks, corporations. You, you note, I think, the Panama Papers somewhere in the book as well, like that the enablers are often seen as like some, and this is true too, we have poor working class white people in our region who I think do enable Trump in many different ways, but not to the same degree uh, that his billion dollar backers enable him. And this is something, you, this is like an, a, a thread throughout the book that what's often not discussed are the sort of more liberal institutions, uh, also churches, uh, uh, houses mm-hmm. of worship, not just churches, who uh, have enabled these strong men to come to power and once they're in power. Totally. Yeah, The so... Um it's very much a history of enablers because although these guys like to, you know, present themselves as omnipotent Superman, they can do everything themselves. You know, when somebody asks Trump and like, who do you consult on foreign policy? And he says, Oh, I have a big, beautiful brain. I just consult with myself, you know, all of this, they are nothing without their enablers. So you have the political elites who have to, who, who take these extremists, you know, and and invite them into the system and mainstream them. And then religious institutions have always played a really important role um, to, uh, to, to bring them constituencies, to legitimize them morally, and in particular, to prop up this whole idea that they are the saviors of the nation. And so one of the ironies is that it's often been the most profane criminal people, because um, many strongmen in my book came into power with criminal records. They're, they're, they're thugs, they're rapists, they're, you know, uh, they're very, very bad people. And they become the ones who do the deals with major religious institutions. So first was Mussolini, who was a serial, you know, rapist and sexual assaulter. He knifed people. He, he was a very violent, he was a violent thug and also extremely anti-clerical, no one more atheist than Mussolini. And he was the one who the Vatican made the Lateran Accords with that created the Vatican's an independent Vatican state that's still there today. Likewise, Trump, I mean, who is more amoral than Trump? And yet Trump is the one who's been embraced by not just evangelical Christians, but also Orthodox Jews. Um, as a kind of someone with access to divine, you know, he's there with a divine mandate. And he's actually delivered a huge amount for these groups. So it's not just that these religious institutions are hoodwinked. They, it's a mutual using, and it goes, and it goes, it happens over and over again. And, and Berlusconi also had support of the Catholic Church, even though his uh, right hand man uh, was convicted of mafia association. I mean, so it goes, it goes, it's over and over again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, I, I this, was... yeah, the, these alliances of um, pragmatic alliances with religious institutions. I, I was, I was just going to say it's a good segue because I was going to ask about the context in which Berlusconi comes to power. And once again, Another thread that runs throughout your book, I, at least that I picked up on, is that a lot of these gentlemen come to power in a context of a fragmented left. Uh, and not only yeah. a fragmented left domestically, but as you note in the Berlusconi, in the context of Berlusconi coming to power, uh, the fragmentation of the Soviet Union, the sort of tribalist conflicts, ethnic conflicts that that opened up to the East, but then also in Western Europe at the same time, the, the traditional socialist parties, the workers' parties, the communist parties, they were all falling apart, or they were totally fragmented and it turned into a hundred different parties. Yeah, that's a great point. And 
Berlusconi is extremely important for setting. He really, he set the whole template. Um, he came in briefly in 1994. And that, so there, here we are just five years after the, the you know, fall of, the, of, of communism. And he did this, he did, he broke this taboo. He, he took, he made a, a center-right coalition with his Forza Italia party, which was uh, kind of a mainstream conservative for sure. And he allied with the far-right party, which had, been neo, they had been neo-fascists and they changed their name and the uh, right-wing populist league party. And so this was, you know, a, a very, it's called the center-right, but it was very right-wing. And he had three governments and the whole menu of what people do today from demonizing and detaining migrants. He was one of the first to do that. Um, Islamophobia, homophobia, um, all that comes with mainstreaming the right. And it's very important that, and, and I actually, I had a Fulbright um, in his, his when he came to power. And I noticed the shift in collective memory where before people didn't want to talk about fascism. If I said I was there studying fascism, they were like embarrassed silence. And now every, so many people felt they could say out loud what they used to whisper or just say at home that they like Mussolini. They thought he was great. He made the trains run on time. So I lived through this really decided shift. So, so Berlusconi was the first one to do all of that. And he was able to get away with it because uh, you had the fall of communism and Italy had had the largest communist party. And the left was, um, the left was in, yes, it was in disarray, but he also managed, it was, this was pretty incredible and due to his um, TV skills and his um, propaganda skills, communism actually fallen, it no longer existed, but he kept the threat of communism going. And part of this is they know that psychologically people like to fall back on traditional enemies. So for example, now when people, you know, the, the whole Trump administration continuing with the GOP, they talk about the radical left and communism's coming. It's like, there's no communism here, you know? But people feel comforted at falling back on these polarized, polarizing truths. So it was just all the more notable that Berlusconi did it because he did it just years after communism died and yet he kept it going as a threat. Um, and so when you look at his rhetoric and then you look at what's Orban saying and then Trump, he really was uh, quite a pioneer um, in, in all, all things bad for democracy. Well, my God, I remember when the right tried to portray Obama as a socialist during his time. And you could see some of this. I mean, it was interesting because the first question I had for you, or the way that you defined it, I wanted to ask you this, uh, and, and this is a little outside of the book, but, but I thought of it as soon as I reread this to you, a political system in which executive power is asserted at the expense of legislative and judicial branches of government. It seems to me, you don't talk about this that much in the book, but I think I'm thinking of the Bush administration and the ways in which it subverted democracy and, and the legal system, not nearly to the extent that you document in the book from these strongmen, but how these, you know, at the time, I think a lot of legal scholars and others were very concerned because it could set a precedent, that it wasn't as bad as it could get, but that by allowing these transgressions, you sort of open the door for someone worse to come along and use the, like, the same rhetoric, perhaps the same approaches, to then abuse power in an even more significant way. Is there... Do you think some kind of a uh, maybe a history of like more moderate governments still maybe right wing or left wing, but more moderate who are like use the system in ways that could open the door for people to then exploit it to a greater degree? There's there's always that and more remote, you know, more remote times. You also have McCarthyism, um, which which, you know, you had people blacklisted, you had people fired from their jobs, um, you know, people would cross the street if somebody who was blacklisted came by them, they didn't want to be associated with them. Um, so there's always that, but there also, and so it does show, it, it opens a window for people to realize that the system of democracy is more fragile than they thought. Um, but a, a good example of Bush versus Trump is that, you know, 
for the buildup to the Iraq invasion, there was institutionalized lying uh, because they wanted to invade Iraq around that issue. But um, what Trump did is very, uh, it, it's, it's more advanced. It's the Putin method, the fire hose of falsehoods. He, he attacked the notion of truth on every subject. He lied about everything and even um, the, the, that you could know truth that there was a truth was thrown into doubt. And so that's an advance on what uh, Bush did. And so it's very interesting that, it, and, and Trump, I mean, my take on it is that, you know, Trump, he never had any intention of governing as a Democratic with a small d president. Whereas Bush was still in the frame of democracy. He stretched it, he abused it. And uh, think about how he got in uh, the whole thing with Gore, but Trump really came from a different framework. And his goal was never ever to govern in the sense of other presidents, uh, no interest in public welfare. His goal was to make money, it's, it's an autocratic, corrupt autocrat. His goal was to make money for Trump organization. And that's why um, he spent one out of every three days at a Trump property. So one third of his time was turning public office into a vehicle of private enrichment. And that's what they all do. And Putin has, you know, he has a real kleptocracy where all, it, he's like a vampire and all of the productive energies of Russia, the financial energies, they get sucked into and they get exfiltrated into his, you know, offshore finance, wherever he's keeping his stuff. So there was a fund, but this was such a different frame of reference that even Bush, that's why Bush said, boy, that's weird shit. Yeah. Because at the inauguration, I was like, no, no, that's not weird shit. Well, it's weird for democracy. But for me, everything that he said and did was unfortunately very familiar. And it's been, I've given over 300 interviews um, in the, since he came on the scene to try and educate also journalists about what this, what they found before, what we were going through, um, because it's a it's a fundamental shift of perspective to that that many still haven't made the leap yeah. <laughs> that he was not there to govern and public welfare. Who cares about public welfare? And that's why, very tragically, he was is very you know especially tragic that he was there when coronavirus came, because. It could have been any disease, but he had no interest in governing at all. Only interest in spreading anything that kept him in power and enriched him. So spreading hatred, building a personality cult, domesticating the GOP so they'd be loyal to him and making money for his business. And honestly, he was extremely successful at those goals. He was not successful at governing, but he didn't want to govern. No, the and the 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 differences are profound, and and I the hundred percent. I guess the point I was making, though, Ruth, is that I think that's why it's that much more important for us to hold everyone accountable, even when they try and perform, say, an act of institutional lying. Because if we allow, like to me, it's like you don't allow more and more of this, and you don't excuse what are lesser forms yes. of this, because it, it to me then just opens the door for someone like Trump to take it to a whole different you know, world. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and um, it, it, so in that's, and look and think about the abuses that uh, we, we all uh, see today uh, of ICE and Department of Homeland Security and the, the, all that creation, bureaucratic, repressive machinery creation uh, that came after 9-11, that's, that was, that's part of it. And so definitely the Bush administration opened it, it opened the door to the things that um, it made what Trump did possible. The, the section you touched on a little bit of this, but I want to jump to corruption and violence um, because we only have so much time left and I, and I want to get to the end of the book, but the virility part, the part about masculinity, I found that part to be so important because especially you know, the institutions in which Sergio and I have come from, we've seen how that's used. I mean, it's quite literally used 
as part of the indoctrination process through boot camp, through the school of infantry, and then when you're in combat and even when you're back on base. Uh, and of course, manifests itself in, in really disgusting and, and sick ways, like the fact that one out of three women who served in the military are reporting some form of military sexual trauma. Um, but it also, it's, it seems to me that this is so much a part of this sort of right-wing culture as well. The uh, Miller Idris book uh, talks about these different um, places in which this is happening. So this is everywhere from like MMA gyms, so mixed martial arts gyms, yeah. uh, places that I've been to in the past, um, all the way to like online chat rooms where this is taking place. And that all of it, like a central component to all of it, and Kathleen Ballou uh, points this out in her book, uh, Bring the War Home, too. Is this, like, loss of purpose, yes, but also men coming home and feeling emasculated, men coming yeah. home from a war they lost, uh, men in the Midwest losing their factory job and no longer able to provide for the family. But then the other side of it, which is, like, stoked by the culture, which is, like, as a man, you know, you could do whatever you want with women. They're there for the taking. All of this is, like all wrapped up in this and of course you mentioned uh, Mussolini you mentioned his his like serial rape behavior uh, Putin Gaddafi's sex chambers and all of that which is just totally depraved stuff but I was wondering if you could sort of mention less about what they're doing and more about how you think about this within our culture like how how are the ways how are the ways in which this kind of uh, like toxic bad masculinity is like being engendered within this culture and, and how much you know can we should we i think pay attention to this yeah part of it is um you know models of masculinity that are are built on um which trump personally embodied he he's amazing because he actually embodied every behavior from ogling to misogynistic comments to touching to raping everything he he had his entire history he he touches all the, the the parts of this but it's it's glorifying this kind of model of masculinity um and seeing strength and domination and trump had a quote said if you're not going to dominate you're wasting your time so that that being uh in power means dominating it doesn't mean collaborating and obviously in institutions like the military where you have chains of command and uh, it, it's it's about it's profoundly about collaboration in the field but it's uh, also about hierarchy um there are certain institutions in society that could lend them lend themselves more to to this uh, especially when they're institutions where physical prowess and proving your masculinity through force, right? Like the military. But as we see also from what's going on with Governor Cuomo, I mean, these abuses of power and this toxic model of uh, leadership based on arrogance also um, is, is not specific to any um, political party. And so one of the kind of stealth or not so stealth um, agendas of the book was to get us to look uh, at these models of power that we embrace. Um, I'm actually launching uh, a newsletter with Substack called uh, Lucid, and it's uh, about abuses of power next week. And um, it's going to look at not only uh, uh, the, the toll of authoritarianism, but other forms of abuse of power and think together about um, how we can promote models of leadership and authority and, and masculinity that are not founded on these uh, concepts of, of domination and plundering. Um, because what, what authoritarians do is they set things up so they can plunder. They plunder nat natural resources, they plunder the economy and bodies and the whole thing. I was just about to mention natural resources because people could be listening to this and maybe in the U.S. context, maybe before COVID, although now there's still people who don't think it's been that severe having this guy in power for the last four years. But you mentioned in the book, and it's so important, that you use the example, I think, of, uh, I don't know if it was Barr or Tillerson or one of the others, but, but you used the example of the Arctic ice melting and the Trump administration. Oh, it was, um, 
Yeah, uh, Mike Pompeo. Pompeo, yes. Major um, villain, major villain. Yes, major. I know. Uh, my brother uh, actually works for the State Department, so I, uh, yeah. Anyway, major he's, <laughs> yeah, he's a, he is a major villain. But the, that in this context, in the context of ecological devastation, in the context of climate change, that the potential consequences of having these types of people in power at a time like this, when they see what could perhaps be the end of civilized species as we know it, that's not even hyperbolic to say anymore, yeah. um, as an opportunity to make a buck, uh, you know, knowing they're going to die in 10 or 15 years. These guys are like all in their 60s and 70s too, which is just amazing. That's, uh, yeah. 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 Um. And that's why I think I, in one of the first paragraphs of the book, I said that the strongman style of rule is now an existential threat um, because it's all about using and discarding. It's a very bleak um, philosophy of life, and, and it, it extends to the government, extends to national re natural resources and climate and how you treat people. Um, and creates a huge amount of destruction, but and hopefully um, the pandemic has um, kind of brought this, made this more clear for people, because um, we're in a very fateful period, which is also why I wanted to start this publication. Um, so on the one hand, democracy is more and more challenged. Um, the annual reports of Freedom House and um, and other watchdogs, they they show that fewer countries have stable democracies and authoritarianism is spreading. But we're also seeing record numbers of protesters around the world. Like like nonviolent mass protest is at an all time high. Um, so there are these two big forces, uh, and some people are protesting. You know, it's climate activism or it's political re repression. And, and some of it is mixed, right? But these two big forces are coming into conflict. Uh, and, um, and as you said before, a lot of these strongmen are, are aging um, and they don't, they're not the type of people who appoint successors. Because right. <laughs> of their ego needs, they can't have a successor. Nice. Um, and so it, it's, it's going to be a very interesting, you know, period, very fate, fateful period. But I also believe that um, the center and let's say liberal liberals or people who are more centrist have not done enough to claim the space of, um, of patriotism also. For example, I am a pro-military um, liberal, um, social progressive, but uh, pro-military and it's been in 2018 I wrote a CNN op-ed called uh, that said liberals are reclaiming patriotism and I thought that I saw what was going going on with Trump and the polarization of America and it was up up to you know up to us to uh, reclaim a center and speak in ways that unite like the military is an institution that crosses society right? Um, and so things like that. And I think that um, we need that kind of bridge building and we need that kind of um, um, appeal to common themes like loving your country. And that is all the more important when you've had somebody in power who scorns the country and just wants to destroy it for profit. It's a really interesting point. We just interviewed a historian, Harvey J.K., a couple months ago, and this is a trend I've been hearing more and more on the left. Uh, like Harvey, I consider myself a, a socialist, a democratic, so, democratic socialist of that variety. And yet what's interesting to me is following both during the Trump era, following Trump's defeat, and then the post-January 6th time frame, I have found some of the most useful analysis coming from liberals. Um, not from some of my friends on the left and not from some of my progressive friends who I think too often uh, poo-poo existing liberal institutions. Uh, and if you don't have a viable alternative to replace them, uh, and if the social political forces aren't available in the country to do so, it would seem to me that we should do our best 
to defend the very best of those liberal institutions from attack uh, because that's what we have and that's what we live under right now. Um, that's an aside, yeah. maybe a digression. I don't mean to, I'm not going to like d- debate political ideology, but I, it, I found it interesting. I mean, I found that very interesting um, and frustrating that a lot of my friends uh, on the left haven't taken up the mantle of patriotism, uh, offering an alternative to the kind of like hyper-nationalism and xenophobia that's offered by the right. Well, there's a good, there are good reasons, and and I don't know if you actually what what is liberalism right now. If you actually put my positions up, I probably would. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a progressive on many many things, um, but um, yeah, I think we're in this. The thing is, we're in this period where um, where we're faced with a new challenge and we have to kind of change the way we do things to and the way we think about things to respond to it pragmatically not giving and that doesn't mean giving up our principled stances on uh you know dignified like measures that will give people a dignified standard of living and racial justice and all those things but it means being smart about messaging also um so, you know, it was interesting that the Lincoln Project, when they did their Morning in America um, ad, that uh, they, they actually influenced a lot of people getting them together uh, and their former Republicans of, who, who were responsible for some very bad trends in, you know, um, in, in political life. Um, that helped the Tea Party indirectly. That helped, and they were able to channel this uh, grief for America and patriotism. However, who are we? You know, how are we defining patriotism? I, I certainly don't define it in stupid nationalistic terms. Um, but I feel very. Um, I wrote this book partly because I felt very sad. I'm a first generation. American, my parents are immigrants. I felt so sad at what was happening. Um, and I've always been critical of uh, when when Bush came in and the, you know, it looked like the Iraq war. I, I remember going on the subway with uh, kind of, I had to stop because people were getting hostile to me, you know, kind of anti-Bush um, like stickers and stuff. Um, so I, I'm hard, I'm, I guess I'm not as much of a, a sedate liberal in that way, <laughs> but we we really do need to um, be very smart about our messaging to win back uh, people who toward the center, or we will end up with some form of like Victor Orban's, you know, government. Um, not, and you know, Ruth, not even people just from the center, but the working class, poor people that we live around, including. We live in a city that's almost one third black. And during the Black Lives Matter protests, a lot of our black friends from the city were like, what the fuck do you mean we're going to defund the police? They're like, nobody's defunding the police. They're like, who do you like? That's not happening or abolishing the police. Now, yeah. like shifting funding in different areas, this all makes sense, of course. And in certain, again, like blanket sloganeering doesn't work. And I've talked about this on the program in the past, so I don't want to get into it too much. But blanket sloganeering doesn't work because you might have the funds to shift uh, around, say, in a place like New York City from, say, a hyper-militarized police force that's uh, you know, has too much money to some social programs. But in a place like Michigan City, uh, where we're already cash-strapped and there's no money in the, in the coffers to begin with, there's no money to shift around. So already the more moderate demand of defund the police means nothing to people here. Uh, and it, it, it's literally, un, like, you can't do it in Michigan City because there's no money to move around. And the idea that we we're going to abolish the police, uh, even in a city like Gary, Indiana, which is still the largest blacks, blackest city in the country, 85% black, uh, close to 80,000 people who live in the city, uh, there were small-time protests, and most of the activists we knew in Gary were not um, demanding that we abolish the police or anything like that. And some of the counties, the last thing I'll say is there was a great report after the election in the Los Angeles Times about some of the counties in the Rio Grande Valley region of Texas, uh, where Latino support for Trump had skyrocketed from 2016 to 2020. Uh, And 
some of the things they noted or one of the, the issues they noted was this call to abolish the police, that you had a lot of working class Latino families, first generation, just moved there. There are issues of like crime and, and, and robberies and so forth. So they're like, all of these things are playing a role. And so it's not just like people think of like the educated professional class centrist liberal who's opposed to this. No, it's like a lot of the poor working class people we know who just like mm-hmm. are like, no, this doesn't make any sense to us. Yeah, so that that's a perfect example, and um, it, it, it's just we we don't have that much time uh, because there you know as we as we speak there are so many uh, laws that the Republicans are trying to pass to have voter suppression, and they they want to get back in and finish what Trump and Barr and Pompeo and all these uh, right wing you know people what they started they want to finish it. And that's a very scary thought. So we we have to be very smart in how we approach things, um, and and that means being thoughtful. Um, probably means compromising on some things, um, but I'm, I'm not sure how prepared. It's also such a huge country. Um, it's it's some of the places where you study that there's been more success um, countering autocracy. They're much smaller. And it's, it's easier to get a kind of co- enough consensus to move forward. Um, this is a whole different story. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, I've long thought that one of the my biggest concern in the U.S. is a balkanization of politics in the U.S. It's not yeah. uh, some sort of like one centralized system that's going to take over. All right. We've almost taken the entire hour of your time. If you want to read about uh, more tools in the second part of the book, From Corruption to Violence, you have <laughs> to get the book. If you want to read about the end of the book, um, Resistance and the, way, and the way that these uh, authoritarian rulers, strong men, go down. You have to get the book. The book is called Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present by Ruth Ben-Ghiat. It is an excellent book, one of the best I've read all year. Uh, Thank you for your time, Ruth. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C Media. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at Park Media, Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.